Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. Well, I've been thinking more about it since the last time I preached, and I think maybe my dad was right when he was getting ready to discipline me, and he said, "Uh, son, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. I don't know if you remember me talking about that, and I didn't buy it uh, at the time, but the more I've thought about it, and especially as I've read through Zephaniah, and we've gone through uh, this series on the minor prophets, and we've looked at God's judgment and God's discipline— Uh, It's easy to think God's doing this just out of anger, like he doesn't really like his people all that much. And instead, when you start to think about it and you realize the truth of who God is and he doesn't change through all of scripture and we know that he's a God that loves us, that he is our father, that he wants what's best for us. And so his willingness to discipline us his willingness to let bad things happen, his willingness to do whatever it takes to turn our hearts back to his, a reflection of his incredible love for us. And so when I think about this book of Zephaniah, you see those two scriptures and you think, wow, those two sets of scripture seem really different. You have one, the first one that's incredible judgment, and it's kind of scary, and you have one that is this incredible picture of love and restoration and God redeeming his people. How can those come out of the same little three-chapter book here in Scripture? Well, it's because Zephaniah is going to give us a picture of this two-sided coin. It's one coin. It's a picture of just love, a God who is big on justice and he's big on love. And it's the same God, and you get both sides of that coin as he seeks to turn his people's heart, their hearts back to him. And he knows what it's going to take long-term to do that. And he knows just how deep their sin is in this moment. And so... The story of Zephaniah, maybe you've never heard I never thought about it this way before either, but it's really a story of a good father who loves his people. And so I'm excited to look at it that way with you today. Uh, if we just look at the timeline real quick, you can see uh, down on the Judah line that Zephaniah, uh, he's right there, right before the exile. And he's, he's prophesying at the same time as Nahum and Habakkuk, who we preached about last week. You also have Jeremiah uh, on there as well. All of them in different areas prophesying at the same time. And like a lot of the books of prophecy, this is how it starts. Verse 1 says, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. Now, I'm not sure that's what it looked like. Exactly when it came, but the reason I like that picture is because it seems to be a lot more about what God's doing than what Zephaniah is doing. And you get that picture in this book. We get a little bit about Zephaniah 
And then we get a lot about who God is and what God is doing. And I just want to do like a mini sermon before the actual sermon based on this one verse. God speaks. God speaks to people in the Old Testament. God speaks clearly to people in the New Testament. And maybe you've experienced this for yourself in your life. God still speaks today. And so you could probably say, and probably in a very different context, the word of the Lord came to me. And when the word of the Lord comes to you, there's an expectation and a hope that we're going to do something with it. And that's what we get with Zephaniah, and that's what we get with all of these prophets, that when the Lord, word of the Lord comes, and we don't know how, it would have been interesting to know, like, what did that look like? How did the word of the Lord come to him? What exactly did God say? What was his response? All we know is the word of the Lord came, and then we have the prophecy that he gave. He was faithful in speaking and writing what it is that he heard. And so for you and for me, I just want to encourage you uh, that if you are a follower of Jesus, the word of the Lord is going to come. He's going to speak to you. He's going to ask you to do things. And we want to listen. We want to be ready and prepared. And when it comes, whatever it may be, that we're ready to say yes and step into whatever he's asking us to do. And that's going to look very different at different times of our lives and in different situations. But the word of the Lord will come. That's sermon number one. It actually came to someone else who's listed here in these first couple of verses. It tells us a couple of important names here, and they get confusing because they all kind of sound the same. We've got Zephaniah, who's the prophet. We've got Zechariah, uh, who is another prophet that we often get confused with Zephaniah. He's not in this book, but it's just easy to get their names confused. Then we've got Hezekiah, who this mentions, and he was the king about four kings ago, and he is actually Zephaniah's, I think, three times great-grandfather. But he's also the great-great-grandfather of Josiah, who is the king right now in this moment while Zephaniah is prophesying. So in some way, the two are related to each other. Uh, and it gives a little interesting context because we have this line of kings, four of them. Two of them are mentioned here. The two that are mentioned were good kings. We have Hezekiah who came and he... He went about wiping out all of the idolatry in the land and turning the people's hearts back to the Lord to bring Yahweh worship back to the forefront of the nation. And then he had a son named Manasseh who was terrible, absolutely evil, who turned everyone's hearts away from the Lord. And he brought all kinds of idols into the land and set up all kinds of terrible things. In fact, he sacrificed his own child to an idol. And then his son, Ammon, who was not quite as bad, but pretty bad. And then you have Josiah. So the book ends there. Josiah became king when he was eight years old. And it tells us about, I think, 12 years or so into his kingship. They were doing reconstruction in the temple, and they found God's law in the temple it seems like it had been hidden away and forgotten for quite some time. And when, he, when, the, when they found it and Josiah read it, the word of the Lord, in a whole different context, came to Josiah and he believed it. 
and he trusted it. And like his great-great-grandfather, he went about trying to turn the heart of the nation back to the Lord again. And he started destroying all the idols, and he started getting rid of all uh, the bad people that were leading in the temple, all those who were leading people astray. And yet, the problem here is that it wasn't enough. This is one of the few books of prophecy where we don't get a promise that here's what you're doing wrong, and now if you turn away from that, you will be spared. This one's different. It says, here's what you are doing wrong, and even though you are kind of trying to turn away from that, you will not be spared. Yet, there's still judgment and hard things that are to come. And this is how it begins. Actually, before I read this first verse of judgment, I just want, I was in this journal this week, and I read this verse that just struck me. There's just a verse at the bottom of every page. And this one was from Moses. It's in Deuteronomy. It was at the end of his life, the song of Moses, as he's singing out to the Lord and, and kind of preaching to the people the way that they need to live. And remember, this is coming not long before Moses dies, and he has had this whole long relationship with the Lord, and some of it's been great, and some of it he's disobeyed. And because of his disobedience, he's now missing out on the promise of getting to enter the promised land, and yet he's still trusting in the Lord. And this is what he says in Deuteronomy 32.4. Speaking of God, he says, He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just, is he. This is a man standing under the judgment of God, also very aware of the love of God, But in the midst of that judgment and dealing with the results of his sin, he was willing to say God is good and he's just and he's faithful. And he understood that he was getting what he deserved. And so in verse 2, here's what we get. This is kind of strong language, I would say. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. Okay. And then he gives this little section that's almost like if you were to take the creation story and shrink it and reverse it, that's what you get right here. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds and the sky and the fish and the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. That's strong language of judgment. Everything's going to be gone. And for the nation of Judah that was getting ready to be taken into exile, that would be their experience on earth as they knew their life in their nation and the way that they lived, all of it as they were taken away would be lost. They would be in a foreign land knowing nothing that they knew before. And it would seem to them as though creation as they knew it was gone. And this is just a, a very awesome, poetic picture of what this judgment was going to feel like for the people of Judah. But why so harsh? Like, that seems kind of harsh. We can look at God's judgment and think, I mean, is it that bad? Like, is what they're doing really deserve what you're saying you're going to do? 
right now? Well, let's look at some of those things. One of the scriptures we read a minute ago, Dan read for us, was in chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, which kind of give this list of the idol worship that was happening in Judah at the time. And although Josiah was doing his best to tear those down and to change the landscape, the people were stuck in their ways. And I think God knew it was going to take something bigger and stronger to turn their hearts back to him. It tells us that they were still worshiping Baal. They were up on the rooftops praising the starry host, the gods of the stars, not Yahweh who created the stars, but other gods. It mentions Molech, and and there's others, I'm sure, other foreign gods that were still being worshipped in their context. And even mentions these foreign practices, these these things that they were doing, whether in uh, temple, other temples, or in the actual temple of God, things that were, were terrible. In verse 8, it talks about people wearing foreign clothes, which is a reference to those that would wear certain things to worship idols, to worship foreign gods, and they were now wearing the same clothing within Yahweh's temple. And it talks about, on that day I will punish all those stepping on the threshold who fill the temple with their gods and violence and deceit. What's that all about? Well, you think all the way back to when uh, the ark was taken by the Philistines, way back in the story, and they start passing the ark around from Philistine city to city, and it was like a bad thing. Bad things kept happening every time they took the ark into a city, so they were just passing it around like a hot potato. Nobody really wanted it. For that long. If you remember, at one point they took the ark into the temple of Dagon. And if you know that story, what happened is when they set the ark next to this giant idol, it fell on its face. And so the Philistines set it back up again, and they came back in, and it had fallen again and broken to pieces. The head and the arms were all broken off, and it says it laid on the threshold of the temple. And so the Philistines, from that point on, they had. This deal where they just, when they went in there, nobody would step on the threshold. It was like bad luck when they went into the temple. And so there's a good chance that's what this is talking about here, that people are still taking that practice from a foreign god and they're using it within God's temple. It's like they wanted to worship God, but they also wanted to worship other gods. They're kind of hedging their bets. And if God's system for forgiving his people was based on pure worship and sacrifice. And then you break that whole system by worshiping other gods. Then there's no way to be forgiven. Not in that system. Not the way God had set it up. And on top of the idol worship then, we have a couple other things that are listed here. We have complacency and we have pride complacency in the people of God. It tells us in verse 12 of chapter 1, at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on his dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. This wine picture is just, wine just sits and it just settles and it becomes no good because it's, it's never moved. It's never used. And the people's hearts started to think, they started feeling like, God, he doesn't care. 
He's not, he's not doing anything. He's not doing anything good. He's not doing anything bad. And so they just start to turn to their own ways. And that thought process actually rubs off on the nations around them. They, thought, think, they start thinking, okay, if God's people don't even think he's that powerful, he's doing that much, he cares that much about what's going on in the world, he must be pretty weak. And so they start, they start talking. They start showing their pride. They start saying how much more powerful they are than God. And if you look in chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, it says this is what they will get in return for their pride. He's now talking about the nations around them. For insulting and mocking the people of the Lord Almighty, the Lord will be awesome to them when he destroys all the gods of the earth. So you've got idolatry, and you've got complacency, and you've got pride, and you've got violence. You can go on and keep reading in there the violence that they were doing, the unjustness to those who couldn't fend for themselves. And God knew, because we know he knows all things, what it was going to take to turn their hearts, what it was going to take to weed out the bad and try to preserve what little good there was left in the midst of his people. And if we believe that God is a good father and we believe a good father wants what's best for his kids, for his people, and that that good father will do whatever it takes to turn their hearts back and to put them in a place that's right and that's good and that his love is great. Then we think about the judgment that's coming. It would make sense that a great love would have to bring about great judgment. That someone, we just know from our own experience, if when we see a parent that like just let their kids kind of do whatever, even though they know it's very harmful, we tend to think at least our judgment would be, man, it seems like that parent doesn't really love their kid very much because why would they allow them to do that when they know it's going to lead them down a bad path? But when we're trying to save our kids, even though it's really hard sometimes, we're willing to go to great lengths. And I think that's what's happening here. God knew there was a time of refinement that needed to happen, and he knew it was going to have to be strong and it was going to have to be big if his people were going to get it, because they had proven over and over again in the cycle that he kept forgiving and they just kept going back to it and something different needed to happen. And in the midst of that, he asked them to turn back to him, to do this U-turn that we've been talking about. He says in chapter 2, verse 3, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility, and perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Now, we're in Oklahoma. I know you know that. I've only been here three years now, and I knew like a whole tornado thing when I moved to Oklahoma. We moved from Colorado, and they happen every once in a while. But, I mean, we were only here a few weeks before the first tornado siren went off, and I was stuck in a drive through line with cars in front of me and behind me, kind of freaking out because I couldn't get out. And I look around, and like, nobody cares. <laughs> Everybody's just like ordering their food and walking out of restaurants. And I mean, it's like, is it coming? I think people just look, and if it's coming, then they kind of do something. If they don't see it, they don't worry about it. Anyway, when you see it's coming, 
you want to do something about it, which is, I think, why so many people have tornado shelters here. And as we started looking for houses, we saw there's all kinds of different tornado shelters people can get to hide in. We chose a house that didn't have any of those. Um, But we do have a closet under the stairs that we can hide in. We can take shelter, and we've done it a couple times. But when you see the storm coming and you think about a tornado, especially if you're outside and you see it's, it's coming, it's really coming at our house, you would get in your shelter and you would hunker down and you would hope that when it passes, your house is still there, but most importantly, that you are still there. In a sense, God is saying right here, I am the shelter. The storm is coming and it's going to hit you. And so if you want to have any chance of surviving this, come to me. Seek me. Be humble. Don't think that you can do it on your own. Obey my commands. Seek righteousness. And again, be humble. And when the storm passes, you might survive. That's what he's saying here. And then again, he gives us these words that What I'm doing is right. If you look over at verse 5 of chapter 3, Zephaniah says, The Lord within her, within Judah, is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice, and every new day, he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. If you look at the verses right above that, you can see he's giving all kinds of judgment on the leaders of Judah and how evil they are, and then he compares himself He compares God, but compared to them, look at God who is just and who does no wrong, and he is right. And so he's saying the storm is coming. Number one, hide yourself in the Lord. Number two, remember that what he's doing now is right, and it's just, and it's deserved. Some of you may have been distracted by my duct tape sitting up here. At least a couple people in the first service noticed it. I had to make sure I told the people in the room, like, Dan is very details-oriented. And so I said, hey, I'm putting duct tape up here, so don't take it and put it away for me before I get up there. But I was thinking about uh, several years ago as I camp, and I was thinking about sin, and for some reason duct tape came to mind. And so it relates to what we're talking about today. I just think about the purpose of duct tape is to be useful, right? And it's only useful because it's really sticky. It was kind of the best sticky tape that they had for a while. Now there's some other versions of this, and I already messed it up by folding it over right there. But it's only useful when it's sticky. And what happens when we sin, and what happens with this idolatry and all that was going on there, especially you think about the idolatry, the wickedness, the evilness, is when you get duct tape dirty, like I dropped it in some of the bark out front of the church, or I set it down. Like, this isn't very useful anymore, right? What am I going to do with this? I can't use it for the purpose that it's been created for. And not, uh, not duct tape, but us. We were created to be sticky in a sense. But we were created to stick to God, to be in close relationship with him. And we were created to be used by him in any way that he chose, chooses to use us. Like, duct tape can be used for a million different things, right? That's the whole point. That's why people love it. But when we're covered with sin and we lose our stickiness, we're not much use. And when we're proud, it's like you're using duct tape and you accidentally, you know, you're doing something and then it's just like, oh, 
you know, it sticks to itself and it's like, there's no way, that's not, you can't do anything about it. It's ruined. You can no longer use that piece. And when I think about pride, that's what I think about. It's like we're stuck to ourselves. And it's really hard for God to use us when our focus is all on us and it's no longer on him. And then just to finish it out here, complacent duct tape is no good when it's not in the hands of the person that's trying to use it, right? Just laying there. I mean, unless I step on it. I don't even know why that's useful. But I can't use it. So we got three ways in this scripture that makes God's people of no use, really. What he's saying to them is, I'm sending you away. Because you've lost your usefulness. The point of my relationship with you was to be in relationship with you. For us to love each other. For you to follow me. For me to use you to bless the nations. And all of that is going away. But there's hope. And that's where we get to the, at least what we most of us would think is the good part of this book. Because you get to the end of the judgment section here. In chapter 3, it actually ends like this. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, and to pour out my wrath on them. All my fierce anger, the whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. God is jealous because he loves us. He's jealous because he loves his people. He's jealous because he knows they were created for him that he's the ultimate good, that there's nothing better that they can experience in this world than relationship with him. So anytime they or we turn our love and our affection to anything else, we're settling for something less, for something less good, for something that's going to lead us in places that are not good. And so a God who loves us, of course, is going to be jealous because he wants what's best for us. And so he ends saying, here we go. The storm is coming. And this is happening. And then we start getting some promises. There's a chance for those who have hidden themselves in the Lord, who are trusting in him. Remember he said, you might just make it through. Well, Zephaniah tells us that some of them will. That there will be a faithful remnant, those who have been hidden and protected by God. He says, but I will leave within you the meek and humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. Let me read more of it to you. Then I will purify the lips of the people that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all of the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from you the arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave within you the meek and humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found on their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. He's speaking of the day of the Lord. In judgment, God entering into judge, but also in redemption. And this has lots of language that is relevant to the time, the context of when this was written, and to people that would actually make their way out of exile. But I think it's also speaking down, further down the road. Thinking about Jesus. 
Thinking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Thinking about the end of time as we know it, when God, when Jesus comes back and redeems all things and restores all things. This is incredible, awesome language, full of promise for those who put their trust in the Lord. It's like God saying, you know what, I still see, even through the sin, that there's some stickiness here. And I'm going to cut that out, and I'm going to bring that back, and I'm going to put those pieces back together, and it's going to be even stickier than it was before, more useful. Because you see who I am now, and you trust who I am, like maybe you never have before. And I'm going to use you in this world to grow my kingdom and to redeem others. And then we have the final language that Dan read, this incredible picture of promise, of celebration, of restoration. And I love this picture. I just want you to think about this picture of a father and a child. This is the longing of all of Scripture. This is a story of God and his people. That this would be the end result. A father who loves us that we recognize that he's always got his arms open wide, longing for relationship with us, and that we would turn from our sin and we would run back to him, trusting in him fully for all that he wants to do in our life and for who he says we are as his children. But it means turning away from our sin, and that's only possible because of what he's done for us, right? And when that happens... This is the language that we get in Scripture. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. The God of the universe. Just picture that for a second, because... Oftentimes, we don't have the highest picture of ourselves. We know our messiness. We know all the junk we got stuck to us. But we have the promise that because of what he's done for us, he delights in us. The God of the universe sings over us his love for us. Sometimes that seems impossible. But it can bring great joy when we believe that it's true. I will remove from you all those who mourn. At that time, I will deal with those who were oppressed. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. I will gather you at that time and bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. And this isn't just the good news for the people of Judah. It would be for some of them. But it's been the good news of Jesus' people and people that love the Lord ever since that day. Ever since the day that Jesus decided because of how much he loved us, he would go into an exile of sorts of his own and leave heaven and come to a broken earth full of sin and hurt and pain and to live a life that was worthy 
I mean, we get all these kings in Scripture, right? And people have been longing for a king that will save them. And that was part of the problem in the Old Testament, that they wanted a king and they couldn't trust God enough to do what he could do. And we get some really good kings in that list. The ones I mentioned, you think about David, you think about Solomon and others who did incredible things. God would even say like, David, he's a man after my own heart. And yet in the end, all of them, every single one turned their own way, did their own thing. None of them were completely worthy or perfect. And yet then comes a king, King Jesus, who's perfect, who did it all right, and who loved us enough to go to the cross and die for us so that we would have a chance to be redeemed, to have a chance to turn around, to make this U-turn and to follow him. And that's what he's longing for, for you and for me, to have this incredible relationship with our Father in heaven who's always loved us, who loves us now and always will. But our sin is a big deal to him. He wants us to give up the pride. He wants us to move and break down and tear away anything that we find in our lives that we've put before him. Because he knows that in this life, we're going to experience the fullest life when our eyes are on Jesus. And when we're trusting in him completely, not looking at other things for our identity or for security or anything else, but in him alone. When we trust that he's on the move, that he can and he will be at work in our lives, and we don't get complacent about that. And when we're not proud but humble, and we do like they were told in chapter 2 here, we can still do it today. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. You who do what he commands, seek righteousness and seek humility, and he will hold you. Even though in our life too, we get to go through the storm. We're going to. We're going to be affected by our own sin. We're going to be affected by the sin of others around us. And yet when we're held in the hand of God and we have the seal of the Holy Spirit on our lives and we are saved because of what Jesus has done, it's not any longer you might be saved. It's you will be saved. You will be saved. And I will sing over you. And I will delight in you forever. That's the promise we get in this little book called Zephaniah in the middle of the Minor Prophets. It's really good news. Let's pray together. God, thank you for, for your word. Thank you that you love us enough that you would allow or cause hard things to happen if it means that's the only way to turn back to you. Jesus, thank you for your willingness to die for us so that we could know this incredible, loving relationship with our Heavenly Father, so that we could have the promise of forgiveness when we mess up, when we choose to do the wrong thing. You are so good to us. Help us to trust you more and more every day moving forward. Pray it in your name. Amen.